we start a new year, we start a new series. I'm going to be preaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. You may know it's my practice to preach through whole books of the Scripture through the fall. We worked our way through a good part of Nehemiah. As we go through the spring, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it's, uh, it's an early book in the New Testament. We're thinking about a, uh, a title for the series as we think about this book. And, and I think of basic Christianity. Paul is writing very early. It's one of his first two letters. First, and it's really one of the first two books. The first two pieces of the New Testament that is written is this book. So it's early. It doesn't have some of the, uh, the weight of other controversies and things within it that you see in the longer books of Romans and Corinthians and some of the other things. It's a, it's a basic Christianity. We'll be preaching through it. He touches on all the core doctrines and, and some of the core relationships in a young church in Christ. This morning we'll be covering in just the first three verses. If you haven't already, turn to 1 Thessalonians. Hear the Word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word which is living and true. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and who is not silent. And that your word still speaks because you are still present and your spirit who inspired your word fills your people and you are here. You are in us and You are among us. You are Emmanuel, God who is with us. And so You continue to speak. Father, would You this morning open our hearts and our minds to receive Your Word in all of its truth and power. That we might know You and love You and walk with You in ways that are pleasing and life-giving. We ask it and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. These guys are making a missionary team. They're, they're making a missionary journey. And they're journeying together and planting churches. Paul and Silvanus, who is also, also known, Silvanus is his Greek or Roman name, also known as Silas. You might recognize him by that name. Paul and Silas and Timothy. Silas was a leader in the Jerusalem church. So he's an early leader in the formation of the church and its foundation in Jerusalem. He takes part in the uh, Jerusalem council. If you read through the book of Acts following these things, in Acts 15, after Paul's first missionary journey through Asia Minor, planting churches in places like Iconium and Lystra and Pergamum and Ephesus and churches in Galatia, a lot of them that are addressed in the first chapters of uh, Revelation, uh, but, but others, so they threw that Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, they plant a bunch of churches and come back, and they come back with the, with the report that Gentiles are believing in Jesus too. You know, that this Gospel, this Jewish Messiah that we're preaching, that it's having an impact not just on, on the Jewish community embracing Jesus as their Messiah, but Gentiles too. And so they have this 
council in Jerusalem how to handle this influx of Gentiles? And do we make them become uh, circumcised like other Jews? And there's this whole thing, what do we require? What They decide, no, we're not going to make them be, uh, uh, be circumcised. You can read in Galatians, which is one of the first two books of, of the Bible that was written, deals with that very issue. This is probably, 1 Thessalonians is either the first or the second book written. They're, they're not sure. They're both very early. So there's that council in Jerusalem deciding these things, how to handle these things. Silas is there as one of the leaders. When Paul leaves that council and goes back to Antioch uh, to report on the, the decisions of the council, Silas goes with him. After they make the report and Paul decides he's going to take a second missionary journey, he's going to go back through the churches of Asia Minor to strengthen and encourage them and to check on them. And as he and, he, he and Barnabas go to embark on it, Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with them and, and Paul doesn't want him to go. And you heard that. There's a sharp division with Paul and Barnabas and they, they end up splitting. And so Paul asks Silas to come with him. So here on this, this is the second missionary journey. Paul brings Silas with him and they head through the churches of Asia Minor, strengthening them and encouraging them. And as they pass through Lystra and Iconium, Paul becomes aware of a leader that has grown up in that church there, Timothy. And as Paul and Silas pass through, they invite Timothy to join them. And he becomes part of the team as they head up into the western part and the northern part of Asia Minor. And you know as he gets there, and he plans on heading back east, he has a vision. A man from Macedonia summoning him to come to help them also. Macedonia, if you, if you geography, Turkey, Asia Minor is like a thumb sticking out of the Middle East there. And there's some water that divides. And, and on the other side of that little bit of water is southern Europe, Greece. And so Paul crosses over in obedience to the Spirit and his vision. He takes Silas and Timothy. They cross into southern Europe. Uh, which is northern Greece, Macedonia. And they travel first to Philippi. They preach there. They see success. They plant a church in Philippi, but things go badly. You can read all about that. He's imprisoned and beaten and all goes. And he moves from there and he goes to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a city in northern Greece. Northern Macedonia. The city is named Thessaloniki. It actually means Nike. You'll recognize like the shoe. Nike is a, is a word for victory in Greece. And so Thessaloniki is a victory in, 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 in Thessaly. And it was the name of Alexander's great sister. Because his father had won a great victory in Thessaly on the day his daughter was born. And he named her Thessaloniki. And so Thessalonica is named for Alexander the Great's sister. Even as Philippi is named for his father, Philip II of Macedonia, who unites the Greeks and uh, fathers Alexander the Great. So Thessaloniki then is uh, named after his half-sister. It is uh, a largest city in Macedonia. It's the capital of Macedonia. It's a port city on the coast. It's an economic center. It's large. It's wealthy. It's, it's a bustling place and influential. And Paul comes there with Silas and Timothy preaching the Gospel. They find a guy named Jason. And they stay with him. And Paul spends three weeks preaching in the synagogue. That's his practice. He comes to town. He goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Spends three weeks preaching in the synagogues and finds great success. We read in Acts 17, if you want to read about his little stint in 
Thessalonica. You can read Acts 17, 1 to, I don't know, 10 or 11, something like that. But here was the result. It says some of them, the Jews, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So cross these stratas, the Jews and what the, they say, the devout Greeks. There were a lot of, there were a lot of Gentiles who were, uh, who were attracted to Judaism as a monotheistic, moral religion. It is a powerful, and yet yeah, they're attracted to so much that it has to offer, but they're not really into this idea of circumcision and uh, some of the other things it would take to actually join become a Jew. And so you have a lot of gentle, Gentile uh, hangers-oners, you know, fringe folks that, 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 that participate. So a lot of these guys, they see success. The Jews are converted. A lot of these God-fearing Gentiles are converted. And the leading women of the city, and we know that, that, that he starts with the, the Jews, but then he had a, a campaign among the Gentiles of the city because he writes later in this book that, that they turn from idols to the following and the serving of God. So we know those are Gentiles. There's a, a, a large response to Paul's preaching. Really an extraordinary reception to the Gospel. You know, that we sometimes in our church planting efforts as we go out would only dream of. That you go and spend these weeks or just months preaching and, and you see from the, even the first weeks people come into Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles and leading women as well as you know, the poor and then, and then the, the Gentile population and he's able to plant a, a solid church in Thessalonica in a relatively short span of time. It's not surprising that the Jews around them are jealous. And so they round up some of the rabble and this happened in many places when the Jews see that they're meeting in the synagogue on Sunday and Paul and Silas and his group are meeting at Jason's house and they've got as many people or more people over there worshiping Christ as, they, as the synagogue. And in fact, the synagogue has shrunk because a great many of them are over there. The jealousy and the anger, they round up you know, the troublemakers of the city. They cause a riot. They go looking for Paul and, and his crew. They can't find him. They find Jason. They drag him in. And he's you know, given what for and the whole business. And, but the bottom line is that Paul and his team that night flee Thessalonica by night and head to Berea. And so they're torn away quickly uh, ripped from, from their ministry there among the Thessalonians. And that gives birth to this letter as, we'll, as we see as we go on. Paul and Silas, they end up in Berea. And you know as they preach there, the Berean Christians were better than all the rest because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul and Silas were saying were true. Right? And so you get a good response in Berea, but they go from there to Athens. And while they're in Athens, Paul and the team, they're worried about the church they left behind. They left in the midst of persecution. They were suffering. right? They were, they were hounded by the, by the Jews and by the state. And so they're worried about it. And Paul sends Timothy back to check on the church. While he's checking on the church, Paul moves on to Corinth. And we know that he plants a church there. And we get First and Second Corinthians. But while he's there, Timothy returns and gives him an update on the church in Thessalonica, and Paul from Corinth writes a letter to the church in response to this update that he's received from Timothy. I said it's one of the first or second books in the New Testament. It's one of the first things written. 
It's not bogged down by a lot of the later controversies as you read the Corinthians and, and that kind of stuff where you know, the church has been there longer. There, there's a lot more issues that arise, both moral and otherwise. He does address some moral things in the church, but a lot of it is really in First Thessalonians is, is basic Christianity. Right? There's a lot of, the, of just the Gospel, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and He's coming again, and let's understand that coming again. That'll be an interesting one when we get there. 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, and talking about what that chapter is talking about. But it's early. It's basic. What it expresses is really core doctrine. Core Christian belief. But also core basic pastoral concerns in the life of a, of a young church. Paul, as he relates to this church in one of his first letters, as he really begins a ministry through his letter writing, as he moves through the churches and is unable to be where he are, having fathered these churches, he disciples them by mail, so to speak. And he has a deep concern for these folk. He's worried about them. He left them under fire. Their leadership is new and young. And when he hears Timothy's report, he is overjoyed. He is thrilled with what he hears. The church has not only survived the persecution and this backlash of the whole city against them, but, but they're thriving. They're doing well. And as you see, as we read through this letter over the coming weeks, uh, all that God is doing in their midst. So Paul writes to the church, right? Paul, Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. It's not that the church in Thessalonians Thessalonica. It's the church of the Thessalonians, right? It's people. The church is people, right? So the church of the Hicksonians, right? The people of Hickson. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, the, it's the gathered people of God. This word, this idea of writing to the church, this idea of the church, the ecclesia, is, a, is an old one. Paul doesn't make it up. Uh, it's a common word used for any gathering. If you read Greek stuff at this time, you have all kinds of ecclesias. They're just gatherings. But it is applied in the Old Testament to Israel in a unique way. You'll find the word used over a hundred times in the Greek translation. The hundreds of years before Jesus, the Jews translated their Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, the common language. And you'll see that the, the word ecclesia, church, is used to describe Israel over a hundred times in the Old Testament. The church of Israel, the gathered, the assembly of Israel, the assembly of God. There's a denomination that bears that name. And they take it from the Old Testament phrase, the assembly of God. It's an Old Testament idea and phrase. And so Paul picks it up and he says to, to the church, the gathered one, the ecclesia of Thessalonians in God, the assembly of God, people in Thessalonica. But he adds and he Christianizes it. He, he, and he's doing this. He's, he's marrying things together as he, as he goes through, as we'll see. But one of them is this. It's the church of God that... The assembly not only in God the Father, but in Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is thoroughly New Testament. It's no longer just the Old Testament revelation of God, but a New Testament church in Christ. And so there's a couple things here. One is, it speaks to the origin. And as we look in the, in, in the following weeks as he talks about this, this extraordinary reception of the Gospel, is that this is a church that 
you know, Paul will say over and over again, I think he says it in this letter, uh, and we'll talk about that, and he says it in other letters, I didn't come with eloquence. I didn't come with, I didn't come, you know, with, with persuasion and with manipulation. I didn't come. He's like, I just preached to you. I knew nothing while I was among you except the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And God built a church. Right? The Holy Spirit takes that message. The Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And the Spirit of God takes that Word of God, that Word of Christ, the Gospel, and He raises people from the dead. God creates a church. He births a church, so to speak. And so this church is in God the Father and in Jesus Christ in a very literal, connective way. By the Word of God, they are given birth and born into Christ. And Paul loves that phrase, in Christ. We are in Him. We are His body. We're connected to Him like the body to the head, like a branch to the vine. Like We are, we are in Him. And so it speaks of the divine origin of the church. Who and what we are. It's important for us, right? As this church in Thessalonica is suffering persecution, struggling in the midst of secular pressure, just as we do in our own little ways here and as a church around the world. It is important that we understand in a very real sense our divine origin. We're not just any assembly. We're not just any gathering. We are in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. He birthed us individually, so to speak, but also as a body. And this identity is crucial to survive that persecution and that pressure of the secular and the culture that presses upon us is to understand that we draw life from and have been given life from the steadfast eternal love of God and grace in Christ and that He has done something. The church is God's thing. As I told you before in various sermons, one of the reasons I'm a pastor after declaring for over a decade that I will never ever be a pastor. Adamant to anybody who would listen and tell you I would never do that. Why would anybody want to do that? One of the two reasons that I am a pastor People telling me that how cowardly that view is. But, but secondly, was having enough seminary and enough study to see what the church is biblically. And recognizing this is God's thing. It is what God is doing. It's how He's doing it. He birthed the church is in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. It's not out there in Lone Rangers and John Waynes and individuals who are you know, doing it. You know. The church is the assembly. The word church literally means the assembly of God's people in a particular place. It is what God's doing. It's how He's doing it. But another important thing of seeing this in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is to see here is the coupling of the Father and the Son. I don't think that we grasp just how unique and powerful that is, particularly when this is being written. The monotheism of Judaism, and we are monotheists as well, but our understanding of God has grown and has expanded, and we are, we are Trinitarian monotheists. 
And to see how someone would write and say the assembly of God, taking that Old Testament ascription for God's people and applying it to the church, and then linking Jesus and the Father together in an undifferentiated, undivided way. You are the church of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ together. They together are the fountain and, and source of the church and its life. It's passages like these where the Father and Son are brought together throughout the New Testament. You read Paul and you think about it and you'll see it. It is striking. And it would strike any Jew of the day as it does even now for those around us to see the way the Father and the Son are one. Are united in all their works and all their ways. In being in equality, equal in, in being in glory and work. We see in chapter 3, verse 11, you'll see that they, there is a prayer to the Father and the Son together. That may the Father, God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself accomplish this on our behalf. This linking of Jesus with the divinity of the Father. In 2 Thessalonians 1-2, in the next letter, he writes to them in the various description in the beginning, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea that grace would be not only from the Father, but from the Son. And that the shalom, and we'll talk about that in a minute as we talk about these two words briefly, that shalom, the shalom of God, may you have the grace and the shalom of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the shalom of God is ascribed to both of them. They are both the source of the same grace and the great peace. You know, for those who like to deny and are skeptical about Jesus' divinity and say you can read the New Testament and it never says He's God, you cannot read the whole New Testament and the whole tenor of the Scripture. I think there are places where it actually does say He is God, but beyond that, it is just the warp and woof. The, the, it is just knitted into the very fabric of everything. It is said. Paul begins with a standard ancient greeting. He says, grace to you and peace. Grace was the standard Greek greeting. Peace was the standard ancient Near Eastern greeting. Still is today. Salam alaikum. Peace be upon you. It was all the Near Eastern peace peoples. Uh, still is to this day. Peace to you. Uh, is And Paul brings them together, this grace, this Roman wish for well-being. Paul thoroughly Christianizes, because you and I know as we listen to Paul in the New Testament and understanding of grace, that grace is so much bigger as the undeserved mercy and favor of God, the forgiveness of our sins, the new standing in Christ as His children, the fullness and the gift of His Holy Spirit, the beginning of that good work in us that He carries on to completion. And in that work, it's the supply of all of His grace and all of our needs, His strength and transforming us and uplifting us and comforting us and encouraging us. And so there is this grace to you when it's in God the Father and the Son. It's that kind of grace and peace to you the shalom of God, which is that sense of well-being over all of life. The wholeness of life. Peace with God is where it begins. 
to be at peace with Him through the forgiveness of sins, reconciled to Him through the Mediator. It is peace with God and so peace within ourselves where guilt and fear and anxiety die in the acceptance and eternal grace of the Father. And so, peace with each other because I'm at peace with God and peace with Him. And blessed are the peacemakers because they are the sons of God. Right? And so we have peace with each other as we seek that and to be channels of that and children of that, expressions of that. Grace to you and peace. Peace that is the very expression of a life lived in harmony with God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Young says, this is the privilege and need of all Christians today. Grace and peace sum up the riches that we have in Christ. We should seek them above all else because having these, we have everything. Grace and peace. And Paul moves on as he prays, and I would just point out real quickly that he does move to prayer, which is not unusual in letters of that time as well, to give thanks for the people to whom you're writing. And Paul does that. But again, he takes everything, and everything is, in a sense, bathed in Christian meaning and depth. And so Paul, when he writes to them, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And this is true. Ever since Paul was ripped away from them, he has a connection with them. He knows them all by name and face. He saw them come to Christ. And he, as he is ripped away and goes through Berea and Athens and God takes him forward, he prays for this church. And so I don't think there's any exaggeration here. We give thanks to God always for all of you. His work in building the church. And we mention all you in our prayers, remembering you before God all the time. And I think that means as often as he prays. I don't think that means at every moment of every day. But it means that as often as he prays, he remembers, God have mercy on the church in Thessalonica, those folks who are under fire, those young believers, they seem so fragile in their faith. Would you protect them and strengthen them and make them confident in the Gospel and help them to grow up in Christ and be strong and that the church there would thrive. Father, have mercy. And I can see Him every time that He's praying in the weeks following that He is indeed praying for the church. And He is thankful for them. Paul teaches us to pray with thanksgiving. We give thanks to you, God. All for, give thanks to God always for all of you. He teaches us in Philippians four six. He says, "Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything pray. Don't be afraid. Don't be full of fear. Don't be full of anxiety. Don't go there. Don't play that thing. But in everything where all that is coming up in you, pray. Ask God, and then He says, do it with thanksgiving." So whatever your prayer is, whatever your worry is, whatever you're struggling with, whatever your anxiety is, whatever your problem is, whatever the thing is, he says you should pray and you should always do it with thanksgiving. No prayer is complete without it. I think it would transform so much in our lives and in the life of the church if we were a much more thankful people. And that we started there. We started with what we have to be grateful for. What God has done and what God is doing. So much bigger than whatever those issues are that we're struggling with. A grateful people. A prayerful people. 
But he lists specific marks of genuine work of the Spirit of God. And let me touch them quickly. It is the great trinity of graces. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfast hope. Faith, love, and hope. That trinity of grace is at the core of what I would call basic Christianity. Founded in the grace and peace of God. This work of faith, labor of love, and steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's basic, hardcore, center core Christianity. So unpack them just briefly a little bit. This work of faith. The faith, you know, there's a little bit of you know, trying to understand the difference. You've got two words there for the work of faith and the labor of love. What's the difference between a work and a labor? A labor is more intensive, for number one. We'll get there. Uh, but this work, too, then, of faith, and how would the work of faith be different than the labor of love and in the same work? And So the way I differentiate them, and I think I have a lot of uh, substantial reason to do so, new, given the new, rest of the New Testament, is that this work of faith has everything to do with the shaping of our faith in Christ and a faith that, works in that when we have faith in Christ, it changes everything because it changes us. So we start with the idea in John 6.29, Jesus answers them as they're talking about what do we need to do, and Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe, right? That you have faith in Him who He has sent, that is me, in the Messiah, in Jesus. This is the, God, this is the, first, this is the Bible. What must we do? This, believe in Jesus Christ. Trust Him. Put your faith in Him. Love Him. But faith works. And the Reformation, as we're studying it in, in our class, and we'll get there as we go down the road, you know, we believe in the, in the kind of faith that works. Unfortunately, in the church today, there's a kind of faith that doesn't work. And it's allowed to persist. And we say, if you just believe, here's the three things you need to believe. And we give them some doctrines. Who... You know, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, believe that He died on the cross for your sins, and, and say that you believe in Him and you're saved. Never look back, never doubt it, you're saved. You know, and we give them, if you will just believe these things, you're saved. And that's just not true. How, how do I know? And you're like, wait, Robert. James says it. James says it just absolutely clearly. There is a faith. <laughs> the demons believe and tremble. They know Jesus is the Son of God. They recognized it before the disciples did. Jesus, Son of God, what have you to do with us? Right? They know who He is. They, they recognize right away. They're spiritual beings. They know what Jesus did. They understand these things. That doesn't make anyone a Christian. You can be a demon and believe the same things. Faith has to work. It has to, it has to change the one who has it. In other words, faith is more than a mere belief in a few things. It's a trust in a, in a person that creates something a relationship that connects us to Christ like a branch to a vine, where then the life of the branch flows from the vine. It creates something real. And, and if the branch is in the vine, it bears fruit. And so, in a sense, faith works because it, it changes the tree. Jesus says if you change the tree, if the tree is bad, it has bad fruit, the tree is good. If you change the tree, you get good fruit. And so we say faith, if it doesn't change the tree, it's not faith. Because real faith changes the tree, and so the tree bears fruit. And so in that sense, faith works. Because those who have faith in Christ and trust Him in this way are born again. And a real spiritual thing takes place. A life-changing, life-transforming thing takes place. It works. 
And so we, it's not a bare set of beliefs that we have, but it's an active moment by moment trust in Christ, walking with Him, a connection with Him like a branch and a vine, drawing strength and life and new life. That has tangible fruit and new thinking and new attitudes and new choices and new habits and new behaviors that look more and more like Jesus. The branch looks more and more like the vine every day. And so faith, this work of faith, or this faith that works, and it is changing in some ways we call some of those works, the, the right attitudes and the right heart and the things that we should do. But then, then he says the labor of love. I remember these are the things that I, as I remember you before God and this report that I have from Timothy about God's work among you is this work of your faith but the labor of your love. Love is labor intensive. Sometimes we forget this too. There's a kind of love that we kind of kind of float out there and it's this mishy mashy mushy what? You know, oh, I love him. You know, don't forget this. I'm, I'm never going to meet with you again. I don't really like you. I'm not going to reconcile you, but I love you. <coughs> what? I don't understand. They're like we, we say, I mean, you know, but don't forget, but I love you guys anyway. What? It, but your love, it has, no, it has no flesh on it. Right? It's this mushy idea that your behavior can absolutely betray. But I love you. No, you don't. Love is labor-intensive. It is a labor, the labor of your love. Love is outgoing. Love requires hard work. It is a stronger word than even the, the work of grace. It, it is, it's, it's a word that implies a kind of toil that results in weariness. Uh, you know, love will wear you out. Right? Your labor of love, it will wear you out. Why? Because it is the outpouring of a self on behalf of others. And so if I'm saying, well, what I'm not going to do is wear myself out on your behalf, but I love you. I'm not going to do the hard work. I'm not, I'm not going to do the hard work. I'm not going to do the full, you know, reconcile. I'm not going to do all of that, but I love you. No, that's what love is. It is labor intensive. It is the outgoing of the work of grace and the work of faith in our hearts. Pains are taken. Effort is put forth. Strength is spent. Real love costs us. Supreme example is the Lord Jesus. How can we say we love when Jesus says this, God so loved the world He gave His Son. And then when we see Jesus and we want His example of love and what does love look like, and we say, here's love, not that he loved, we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave Himself for us as a propitiation for our sin who poured out His life. He lived the life we failed to live and He suffered in it. He was rejected in it. He was poor. He was hungry. He was tired. He was God. And He was all those things for you. And, and He pours out His life and He saves us and He dies on the cross and He bears the Father's wrath. Why? Because He loves us. And then we say, all this stuff I'm not going to do for you, but don't forget I love you. And that's not what it is. When that faith is real, when faith works, it produces a love that labors and pours itself out on behalf of others. So I always say in marriage counseling and premarital and everywhere else, love is not 50-50. You know, you do 50, I'll do 50. If you give me your 50, I'll give you my 50. It's 100-100. 
It is you pour yourself out on behalf of your spouse. And you do it no matter what your spouse does. Your vow on that day was not, uh, if you love me, I'll love you back. Your vow was, I will love, honor, and cherish till I die before God. I love, honor, and cherish, and I will do it till I die. I will, it will take great cost. Strength will be spent. Effort will be put forth. Pains will be taken. Death may be incurred, but Jesus did say, take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow. Love labors. And when it is tested, when our faith and our love are tested and tried like gold in a fire, they are sustained by a steadfast hope. Because it's a hope not in ourselves that we might pull it off. It's not a hope, and biblical hope is not wishy-washy. Some of you have been hoping it would have snowed the last few days. So you didn't have to go to work or wherever. Some of you are hoping that it would snow. You know, that's not, that's a kind of hope. We, it's more, that's a wish, because it may or may not happen. Biblical hope is not like that. Biblical hope is, is a sense of joy and well-being in the knowledge of what is true and coming that we haven't experienced yet. It's not, I hope it will happen, or I wish it will happen, or it might happen. It's, no, it's going to happen. Jesus is coming back. Right? And He is coming back in power and glory, and He will reign forever, and the skies will be rolled back like a scroll, and the elect will be gathered from the four corners of the earth, and they will be gathered to Himself, and so they will be with the Lord forever. And I, whatever I labor in and love in, and whatever has cost me, whatever persecution this church is suffering at that moment, whatever fire, it is in a steadfast hope. The afflictions of this life are not worthy to be compared. The glory that will be revealed when Jesus comes. There's a steadfast hope, faith, and hope, and love. Oh, my friends, does your faith work? Does it change everything? Does your love labor? Does it cost you? Is your hope steadfast? Do you live in light of His coming in the future? I remember all of you constantly. Your works of faith your labors of love, your steadfast hope. And I am thankful. And I am thankful for you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. Oh, your grace. Oh, your peace. Oh, the power, life-changing power of faith. The glorious beauty of a love poured out. Oh, the life-giving strength of a hope that is steadfast. These are the things, the core of a Christian soul, and Father, we desire them to taste them and to see that they are good. Oh, may we be made to experience them moment by moment and day by day in a way that transforms your church into the image of Jesus Himself in whose name we pray. Amen.